Welcome to the Corporate Council Business Journal's daily podcast, In-House Warrior, with host Richard Levick, Chairman of Levick, a global crisis and litigation communications firm. Good day and welcome to In-House Warrior, the daily podcast of the Corporate Council Business Journal. Today, we launch a new program, Garage to Global, a weekly program looking at Silicon Valley and how we create opportunities for rapid growth companies. My co-host today, Ian Lipner, the head of Levick's Cyber and Emerging Companies Practice. Ian, as always, welcome to the program. It's great to be here today in particular to launch this series. And also with us from sunny Silicon Valley, uh, Louis Lahoe, who is with L2 Council, and he specializes in getting companies formed, financed, and scaled for hyper growth. Louis, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Richard. It's an honor. It's always great to work with you. We're delighted to kick off this series with you. Our guest today is Rohit Balani, who is the CEO of CoFence. CoFence. Rohit, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Uh, to begin, why don't you talk a little bit about uh, CoFence and what you do and where you are in the market? Sure thing. Yeah. So, um, you know, I've, I've spent two decades in cybersecurity uh, after I graduated from Carnegie Mellon, so a little bit of competition there, Louis, I guess, and uh, for Stanford. Uh, but uh, you know, I got into cybersecurity. I went and worked at a startup, and uh, my life's been uh, four different startups in cybersecurity. Two of which I was an early employee, two of which I founded. Um, you know, knock on wood, they've all been acquired uh, and and had very successful exits. But during that time, uh, what I learned was that there was a lot of focus by uh, the larger players and startups alike on, you know, let's, let's come up with additional technology, you know, trying to throw spaghetti at the wall, if you may will, to stop cyber attackers. Uh, whereas the attackers, uh, unfortunately, have continued to outsmart us to the day, uh, even when you hear about the most recent uh, compromise that occurred via solar winds and so on, that uh, they've just, they find very simple, elegant solutions, unfortunately, to, to compromise uh, all of us. And one of the uh, attack mechanisms that my co-founder, Aaron, and I really homed in on was, the, was exploitation of human susceptibility via email, commonly known as phishing. So whether it's a ransomware attack or you know, someone trying to get you to wire funds or install malicious software malware on your systems, uh, it, it often starts with a phishing email that's received by an employee or a group of employees in an organization. And what we found fascinating was that no one was really focused at the time when we launched uh, CoFence, formerly known as PhishMe, uh, on addressing the human element. So we, we said, that's what we're going to do. Uh, first, we're going to fortify the human element. We're going to condition humans to get better at not falling for these attacks. And the way we're gonna do that is we are going to immersively educate them as in simulate these sorts of attacks uh, on our customers' behalfs on a frequent basis or give them the software to do so uh, where they can replicate the threat and, and get folks um, uh, conditioned. But more importantly, it's not just about the conditioning to not fall for the attack. It's sort of um, the see something, say something idea is what we wanted to put forth. You know, I live here in New York City and um, you see the see something, say something uh, pasted all over the walls in the subway stations and so on. And really the fact of the matter is, you know, if someone sees a suspicious package in a subway, 
the New York Police Department doesn't just want the person to not board the train. They want them to actually call out the suspicious package because everyone's lives are important. And so we kind of took that same message and said, if you see something suspicious, let's call it out. Uh, and, and we really gave uh, our the employees of our customers the ability to very quickly call it out via a button in the email client. It's sort of tag suspicious email. Um, Fast forward a few years of us doing this, we found we have over 25 million people globally using this button, growing at 100,000 per week. Uh, so we have crowdsourced intelligence on suspicious emails across the globe, across industries, and we've, we've been able to develop software that takes in this very noisy channel of crowdsourced intelligence and finds the needle in the haystack to say, what's benign, what's indeed malicious, and let's get the bad out of your systems. So really to summarize it, we're in the business of phishing detection and response at Cofence, but from a very different angle, which is embracing the human to make them part of the security posture versus in my two decades in cybersecurity, you, you get tired of hearing the human's the weakest link. No, that's an awesome introduction, uh, Rohit, and thank you for that. Um, I am so curious about your entrepreneurial journey and where I sit in Silicon Valley, you know, we, 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 we see them in, in every iteration. And um, one of the things that is most exciting for me is to learn what was the tipping point? Uh, what was that moment in time that got that, that where, where the product really caught on? And, and what was it that you did that to, to bring it to ubiquity? Yeah, so maybe I'll take a couple of steps back there, Louis. And, you know, when I was at Carnegie Mellon, I learned a lot of lessons there. And I was telling, um, you know, a younger cousin of mine the other day, I'm glad I learned those lessons while I was a grad student. One of them, uh, well, two of the lessons was that sleep's not necessary for survival. I learned that at Carnegie Mellon. Uh, <laughs> they taught you that for sure. Um, the, the other thing, you know, uh, on a serious note that I learned was that, you know, uh, just being accountable, uh, you, you know, just a short anecdote there. You know, I came here as an immigrant uh, student and I was only allowed to do jobs on campus being on a student visa 20 years ago. And, um, you know, I, I didn't want my dad uh, having to pay for my expenses and so on. It was very expensive in terms of Indian rupees. So I, uh, you know, I was doing two jobs and grad school and, and I was dropping the ball all around the park, essentially doing that. Just, it wasn't humanly possible. And I actually got... Uh, the only time in my life I've been fired from a job was from a teaching assistantship at, at Carnegie Mellon because I'd taken on too much and I, and I just missed a whole bunch of deadlines the professor had set me. So I learned those lessons quick. And, um, you know, when I came into the world of cybersecurity, what I learned was that um, really it was the, it was intellectual property and a laptop is what you needed to get started. It, it, you know, and, and so I spent the first five years of my career, five or six years uh, working at startups, learning the ways of, you know, how things work. And I was very fortunate to be exposed to some of these very successful startups and um, hone my skills uh, to some extent at their expense. But it was, um, you know, six years of doing that, uh, both my co-founder and I realized, Hey, you know, uh, really the initial investment required is two laptops. So literally the first company, Aaron, my co-founder and I started, uh, we started by putting uh, $6,000 each into a bank account, um, which we used to buy laptops and keep a little spare cash in the bank account. And, um, you know, that's where Intrepidus Group and then afterwards FishMe as well got started. We never infused a single dollar of capital after that of our own. It was obviously venture capital went into the companies, but uh, it was $6,000. 
each. That, that's and, incredible. And, when you start in that very early stage, that's sort of the garage that we refer to mm-hmm. in, in, in Garage to Global. Tell us a little bit more about what that working environment was like and how you started to climb into becoming uh, something that resembled uh, a, a, a startup company. Yeah. So, you know, the journey, I, like I say, you know, it was from call it negative two guys where I was uh, still trying to convince Aaron that he should leave his cushy job that he had and we should start the company. Uh, so I call it negative two guys, me and him uh, to 400 employees globally today at, at, at CoFence. Uh, it's been, you know, like I said, it's been, it's been a journey that honestly, I couldn't have even imagined. I'd love to say I did, but I couldn't have imagined. It's, it's awesome. But when we first got started, um, I remember I, I called Aaron up and we had worked together for many years. He's based in the DC area. I'm based in New York. And I called him on a Thursday and I said, Hey, could I come over to your place, uh, and spend the weekend with you? He's like, what's this about? I said, more of the same, try to convince you, we need to start something together. And he sort of begrudgingly said, ah, all right, this guy's going to eat into my weekend plans. Sure, you can you can come over. And back then, all I could afford was I, I took a, a one of those Chinatown buses from New York to D.C. Uh, it was a Feng Wah bus. <laughs> <laughs> I literally got into this thing where the seat was broken. So I couldn't, you know, it was it was in constant recline mode. I felt bad for the person behind me. I get to D.C. But, uh, you know, we didn't have an office the first year and a half. You know, we were uh, bootstrapped. Um, and... Uh, we really focused on understanding, you know, what customer needs were not being met. Uh, it took us doing a lot of consulting work first to to get entrenched in, in Fortune 500 companies uh, and 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 see firsthand what the bad guys were doing to say, okay, now we can sort of really zone in on what this idea is. We sort of knew that email security was the issue we wanted to address, but what in that? It took about a year and a half of doing that prototyping, and. Um, we we sort of unlike a lot of valley startups or at least in the last five years the way i've seen the trend go we we didn't raise seed capital uh we decided we're going to defer raising capital we till, till you know we had about 20 to 25 paying customers uh so once we did that and then we raised our series a we were we were able to manage the dilution to some extent um in the company but it was also a lot more confidence for the investors coming in saying, okay, these guys have brought a product to market that 25 enterprises have actually adopted. There's product market fit enough to back these guys up. Uh, we were first time entrepreneurs at the time. Story's a little different, fortunately now, but uh, so that's how we got started. Um, like I said, we were fortunate this, the, the timing worked out. When you think about timing, yep. were you worried that you were too quick to market at the beginning? Did, were you worried that the market understood? How did, how did cybersecurity companies miss the opportunity that you spotted? Uh, you know, I, I, I think even today, uh, a lot of companies will say the human's the weakest link and it's so, sort of their approach is the human's stupid and you have to build a technological moat around them. Our thinking's a little different. Our thinking is you absolutely need technology. This Nothing can be solved by humans alone, but we believe that there is a healthy intersection of human and technology, which then becomes extremely difficult in cybersecurity for the attackers to, to prevail. And, you know, to, to expand on that a little bit, you know, a lot of the technologies that are used today to detect attacks, uh, you know, may have artificial intelligence and machine learning, but at the end of the day, as the very word says, they're artificial in their intelligence and, and humans, I believe, are smarter and can outwit these technologies and they do. And so 
our thinking is if we are able to enable every employee to have a healthy amount of skepticism and suspicion when interacting with email to be able to call suspicious emails out, there will be some folks that will fall prey to these attacks, some folks that may just delete it, but there'll be a good number, and we see it today, that will uh, in real time report it. But by doing that, what we've done is we've created this non-deterministic detection system, if you may will. The, the attacker doesn't know what they're up against. You know, if they send an email to the five of us, they, they don't know which one of us is going to react in what manner versus with technology, they can reverse engineer that. So what we've really done is we've taken um, their own game, turned the tables, we've made detection sort of turn into this very non-deterministic uh, mechanism. And then once things are detected, to take it from there to actually scale and respond and act quickly and uh, quarantine the threat, that's where we leverage artificial intelligence, machine learning, and, and technology. So it's, it's a different approach. I would say it's only been the last 18 months or so. And, you know, like I said, we're, we're not really a startup per se anymore. We've got 400 employees, you know, we're uh, inching up towards the 100 million revenue mark. And, um, you know, it's only been in the last year or so that we've seen other players in the space actually acknowledge that, oh, yeah, maybe there's a different way to view this, that the humans aren't, uh, aren't just stupid meat tubes. <laughs> So, Rohit, two questions here, two sides of the same question. One is, sure. in the beginning, when did you start sleeping well at night? When did you know, aha, this, 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 from vision to reality, this is going to work and uh, the, the model's working and, and uh, we can sell it and to, uh, sell the product? And two, in an arena which is always disrupting, how do you deal with the fear of being disrupted yourself as a market leader? You're starting to see the market follow you. Yeah, no, great question. So I would say uh, sleep well at night. I wish I could say I, I sleep well at night. Um, I would jokingly say I've slept like a baby all my life, which is wake up every two hours and cry. But um, I, 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 I never rest on my laurels. Maybe that's, you know, that my wife calls out. That's a little bit of an, a personality issue with me. I am, I'm always sort of trying to look around the corner and think about what, what maybe issues, you know, it's different issues, right? In the early days, you're worried about uh, when you're not well capitalized, are you going to survive? So it goes from survive to, okay, let's stabilize to then grow. Um, so I think, you know, it's, it's different issues at different stages and, um, and, and I think your second question sort of feeds well into that is, you know, once you do get traction, it's easy to get carried away and believe, you know, it's sort of one and done. But, you know, I think it's just getting started. And when when other people see success, there's naturally that uh, it's natural that competition shows up uh, big and small. And, um, you know, it's the case for everyone. So from our perspective, the area that we really focused on from the get go was look, if, if as a company today, if you try to defend yourself just by building, and I'll put in air quotes, superior technology, at some point, you're going to have your lunch eaten. Because, you know, if you think of a, I don't know, I'll just use an example, like, let's say a large player like Microsoft decided, hey, this is what we want to do. And it competes with us. I mean, they have a lot more capital, and they have a lot more people, and they can build even more superior technology, right? So that's for anyone. Um, the way we've thought about this and, and resisted and overcome these challenges is always focused on what is the insurmountable data moat that we can build, where even if someone builds technology that may appear superior to ours, it, our data that fuels it is something they cannot replicate. 
And, uh, you know, that's, that's something, as I said, with that crowdsourced base of people that are reporting suspicious emails into our platform with 25 million and growing every day, um, that's really the secret sauce here. Um, you know, a lot of folks may say, look, Microsoft or, you know, any of these large email security gateways are privy to a lot of different attacks. Uh, the interesting part is they're privy to attacks that hit their infrastructure. Given where we operate, we are privy to attacks in, in all infrastructures, in all industries, in all geographies. So at, at Cofence, we actually know what type of email cyber attacks evade every possible email security vendor. And, and that's the data mode that we've created that's, that's insurmountable. So I'll say it helps me sleep a little better at night, not to say that I sleep well at night. <laughs> you talk about the, the human factor and how important that is in security. And it, I can't help but think uh, for, for those who are building technology companies, uh, the human factor is just as important as the tech they're building. How, how did you choose the folks to bring along on the ride, the leaders at the various stages? What, what were the qualities that you were looking for and which ones were unique to, to your brand? Yeah, I, I think, you know, there's a different set of qualities that we've, uh, Aaron and I have looked at from, you know, call it the early stages to the mid stages to now, you know, where we're really scaling and looking to get, you know, well into the, you know, nine figures and beyond in revenue. And so it's, it's, it's different skill sets. Uh, but I think one that sort of sticks out is, you know, not to come across as risking work-life balance. That's not what I'm saying, but a relentless pursuit is, is what I try to find in, in folks that I look for in, in the management team and beyond. It's, it's just that uh, desire to, to want to produce high quality work. I mean, I learned this, I grew up in, I grew up in India. Look, it's a country with 1.3 billion people. And, you know, if, for example, to get into to engineering school, I was explaining to my son who's born in New York and growing up here, and it's very different. You're, you're vying for extremely minimal resources in a country like India with a very large population. So I grew up in Mumbai, 20 million people every year, 20,000 of them, uh, 40,000 of them want to be, uh, want to go into engineering school. And you have you know, probably 1,500 to 2,000 vacancies in, in those engineering colleges that open up through the course of the year. So it's like, you know, you're going to have to fight your way there and you have to take pride in your work. And, and so that's sort of ingrained in my DNA. And it's something I look for in, 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 in a real, when it comes to focus on solving the customer's needs. Oftentimes what I find is a lot of CEOs and founders can get extremely spun up and caught up about beating competition per se. And yes, that's important. But the way I look at it is, look, if you really listen hard to the customer's needs and you're in relentless pursuit to give the customer the best possible solution, you will naturally beat competition. And so that's really what I look for in my, in my management team is that ultra sharp focus on, uh, on the customer. And, and, and that extends to when I say customer, it's external and internal. It's our own team members. I view them as customers. So it's our, our team members and external customers. And, and to me, the rest follows. Rowan, what, what do you see as what's next? We've talked about the maturing market and now other companies are starting to think like you think. What do you see? What, what's around the corner? Yeah, you know, um, I, I think, you know, from a purely technological standpoint, the the migration to the cloud, which was already on its way, and I think we all acknowledge the pandemic has just accelerated that by a few years <laughs> in most cases. 
is is occurring um and and so you know from our perspective we're happy that you know our our solution set as we had built it over time uh, was geared to assist with this and people are really rethinking the security stack i mean you know 20 years ago when i used to do this the thinking used to be well here's my perimeter here's where i'm going to put a firewall that's going to take care of 90% of the problems well there is no perimeter now you know every mobile device is a perimeter every human's part of the perimeter uh, it's all in the cloud you, you really it's a fuzzy concept and so you know what i look at is there's going to be a lot of disruption as there already is occurring but in cybersecurity where um companies that legacy companies that have uh, really milked their cash cows for years uh, by building a piece of software that sort of sat as part of the perimeter stack and they just you know got renewal year after year are are going to be uh, redundant in 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 if they're not already there uh, very shortly and so you know that's something we think a lot about is you know in a pure cloud world we're not quite there today it's more of a hybrid environment but in a pure cloud world how can we be positioned to give our customers the easiest deployable products the ones that take advantage of the network effect that i alluded to earlier in the conversation and just uh you know make it make it very cost effective high quality in the cloud and and that's really what our focus is for uh the foreseeable future here Earlier, Rohit, you had spoken about relentless pursuit. Mm-hmm. How do you uh, how do you identify people who you know? You talked about trying to figure out with a work life balance, but how how do you uh, one identify people and two, you know, balance is always a term that uh, people of a certain generation don't use, and people of another generation do use. As an entrepreneur, seven days a week is usually just not quite enough time. Yeah, you know, I I I I've learned in over the course of my career that, you know, it's easy to get carried away and think that, you know, the, the more the longer hours you work and the more you work, the better off you'll be and sometimes that's uh, it's counterproductive. Uh of course, in the early days of the company, we had no choice, you know, you're wearing multiple hats literally, you know, from uh, running payroll to selling to actually coding to doing the work. So, you know, there was no option there, but over time you know you learn uh, people do need to to recharge and rejuvenate and it really helps um so i'll share an example with you you asked me about relentless pursuit so you know for example on the sales front right when um, you know that's that's an area where you know it, it epitomizes the need for relentless pursuit um in my opinion and and when um we interview people here at cofens and i'll i'll spill a little secret um I actually tell our teams that you know when we think we found a good candidate and we're getting close to the final stages of negotiating their their deal with them uh, their employment agreement and deal uh let's just go dark on them for a day and a half or so and I want to see how they react like just go dark and this is a salesperson to me they're supposed to have that relentless pursuit of okay I'm going to try to you know if I'm selling to someone they go dark on me what are the different tactics they use how do they pressure me pleasantly to come back to the table and it's it's very telling when you see how how people react with that little bit of a stress trigger um in that situation so you know th- those are the sorts of little uh tricks that we use to kind of see how how people are are structured in terms of pursuing something and you said you had how many therapists on call <laughs> uh well i have mine <laughs> Louis? Well, it, um, we're, we're getting really criticized in Silicon Valley about our failure to build a diverse teams. 
And I'm curious as to how you handle the issue of diversity, whether it's, um, uh, you know, and we, we know that there are many different kinds, yeah. uh, but, but tech companies continue to be the province of, of, uh, of, of, of men and uh, a lot of white men. Um, or, or uh, and, and I'm, I'm curious in, in your company, how is it that you're tackling this issue? Yeah, no, it's, uh, you know, I think it's an issue for companies across the board. And it's, to me, it's an important one. Look, you know, I come from a minority diverse background myself. Um, you know, I've, I've, in the early days of, uh, you know, being in the US in my career, I've dealt with my share of interesting uh, sort of experiences to, to reflect on and think, okay, you know, how can we enhance opportunities for, for everyone? Um, we have uh, internally, and this actually happened only this year. So, you know, I would say a little late, but, you know, better late than never. Um, you know, I instantiated a diversity, equality, and inclusion committee here at, at COFENS that I lead. Um, I have two women of uh, both of, you know, a minority that, that help manage the committee. We have several members internally here that participate. And we've made some really good progress. It's, you know, ranging from things like, hey, when, when we're hiring, for example, you know, after the recruiting teams have done the sifting of um, the initial sifting of resumes, you know, what they're doing now is they're, they're actually redacting uh, any information that could be attributable towards the gender or race of a person uh, on the resume before handing it on to the hiring managers for evaluation, just to make sure that if there's any sort of innate subconscious biases, even that those are taken out of the equation. Uh, so that's something we're, we're actively doing. We're working with different agencies that focus on sourcing candidates across uh, diverse backgrounds. Uh, so we're not just sort of going, you know, hands up in the air. We're going to put the job description out there and the first person to walk in the door that we believe is a good fit is, is it, you know, recognizing that not everyone has equal access to opportunity here. Um, you know, we've just, we're, we are, while we're not a huge organization, we do have a global presence. We have six offices globally. Uh, we have folks in the Middle East. We have folks in Japan, Australia, Europe, the US, uh, Philippines. Uh, and we, we, we've really gotten, uh, we've put in an effort to be more culturally aware. Uh, so when we have uh, holidays or uh, celebrations and festivals in different parts of the world, we have folks that are in our offices kind of uh, educate the others and what it is and, and so on. So in general, you know, we're just trying to be, I think there's two levels, right? Strategically, just making people more aware that there's different kinds of people, there are different kinds of cultures, there's different kinds of thinkings, and then, you know, putting in tactical controls to ensure that even in the short term, those innate subconscious biases are, um, are, are quashed as, as, quashed as, uh, as successfully as possible. Where do you go on a near daily basis to get your great ideas, your creativity. You know, the author, best-selling author, Martin Lindstrom, who pre-COVID was on the road, you know, 250, 300 days a year, always insists that his hotel have a swimming pool. And he spends every morning swimming that mile. And that's where ideas generate. How do you and where do you do that? Yeah, you know, I think uh, it's, it's a valid point, you know, having giving yourself some mental uh, down cycles is, is, is very important. Uh, it's just, you know, it's very easy to get caught up and, you know, just having a day meeting after meeting, and especially these days, you know, teams or zoom meeting after meeting, and uh, it just gives you no time to think. Uh, so from my perspective, look, one, when I am scheduling, uh, 
uh, I can be a little irritating and annoying where I, I try to limit the number of meetings I put on my calendar. So oftentimes people will say internally because they can see my calendar and they say, well, your schedule isn't packed and you're saying you can't meet me today. And I'm like, that's exactly right. I can meet you tomorrow because uh, I, I have to draw boundaries and make sure that I have time to think about stuff. Uh, so I try to set aside uh, some amount of time every day, uh, you know, and, and also try to cluster my meetings and interactions with uh, other folks as much as possible to say, okay, today, you know, it's going to be a bunch of morning meetings. No, it doesn't work every day. And today is going to be a bunch of afternoons. So I can get some uh, solid, you know, uh, contiguous time to to think about things. But to your point, you know, in, in, the, in, in the pre-pandemic normal world, when I traveled a lot as well, uh, you know, I carried my books on a Kindle with me, so I spend uh, airplane time reading, uh, and and that gives me a lot of ideas. You know, I'm a big reader of nonfiction and things about you know how people are doing different things in different domains. But even at the hotel, you know, kind of the same thing. You know, you're just um, <laughs> you're not not eating very uh, really good food and so on when you're uh, you know socializing, taking clients out and so on. So I had I had a rule like if I was going to eat dessert, I I would only do that if I'd exercise that morning, and so. Naturally, given my sweet tooth, I'd land up uh, getting on the elliptical or treadmill every morning. And that was sort of my equivalent of the, the, the swimming session you talked about there, which is, you know, just 45 minutes to an hour of plain mental downtime. Uh, so and, and, and ideas just come by themselves. Like I'm not trying to be purposeful, actually, in that period of time saying, hey, Rohit, you need to come up with some ideas. Just giving yourself mental downtime, I found, just gives you ideas. So it gets if- you thinking. If, if we do a Reader's Digest version summary of this, you know, 30 seconds on this show, it'll just be eat more sweets will be the, the, the key takeaway. Uh, it, it'll, it'll be justify your eating. Only if you spend time <laughs> exercising, then eat sweets. And uh, <laughs> that's my mantra. You know, we, we are looking for a, a little bit, bit of an advantage when it comes to, to you know, biohacks, mental hacks, uh, and growth hacks. As you, as you look at, the way uh, the economy and the way the technology world is set up today, what would you be your advice to a, a young company, to a, a small group of founders, knowing that there's maybe a little bit more capability in the hands of, of, a, of an engineer now with cloud computing, you know, knowing that, that there's maybe a little bit more capital opportunity as, as minority investment rises, you know, how, what would be your piece of advice to your 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 equivalent uh if, if you had a clone that popped up today yeah you know I, I i think uh when i first started my first company you know it's 13 years plus ago it was different times and and truly is all the things that you just said I, I not that it's easier you know ideas are a very small part of it but i think executing on those ideas in a capital efficient manner is a little easier today uh, given cloud computing and um, you know everything else on and the same on the same hand you know you have a lot more um, talent is, is is more expensive today than it was was back then because you know silicon valley has pumped a lot of money into a lot of startups and you know people are willing to pay huge packages to folks so it, there's been a little balancing there uh, I would say, though, you know, technologically, uh, I kind of look at it saying I, I, I would recommend to a younger myself, you know, don't be intimidated just because someone bigger is in a particular space. Um, uh, the barrier to entry is definitely lowered from a technological standpoint. And, you know, of course, I would kind of look at it as uh, the person that owns the data owns the game. 
in, in technology. So unless you feel like, hey, the, the data mode is so insurmountable, then maybe you look elsewhere. But purely technology, that's not a technical hurdle anymore. Anything's possible. You know, small, small startups are coming and uh, way more than ankle biting away at the larger players and, and actually beating them at the game uh, every day. We see it in every domain. Uh, you know, someday Facebook was a small company, right? And uh, here we are. So that's sort of what I would say is the the, the fear of, of the mega companies which existed 20 years ago, given how expensive it was to get started technologically, just that, that's gone. And that's great. In-House Warrior is sponsored by Corporate Counsel Business Journal, the leading resource for corporate legal executives for over 25 years. Go to ccbjournal.com to receive your free issue today and to listen to more episodes of In-House Warrior. Rohit, in closing, I know you've given a lot of tips for other entrepreneurs who are following in your footsteps from the garage. Any other thoughts you want to leave them with uh, that are as equally as inspiring as uh, never never be intimidated by the giants? Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. A few years ago, I read uh, the book by uh, uh, Pour Your Heart Into It, uh, Starbucks' uh, former CEO. And... Um, yeah, there's something interesting that he said in there, which was, um, you know, he had, a, I think, 250 investors slam the door shut on him before one agreed to give him the money to take, you know, Starbucks from being a company that sold coffee beans and out of one little retail or two retail outlets to the, the giant it is today. And, you know, not to that extent, but I've had a lot of doors slammed on my face um, by investors and I don't hold it against them. Look, they're doing their jobs and, but, you know, it's very easy to get discouraged. Uh, and, and so, you know, I'd, I'd kind of say, you know, what comes to mind is the famous uh, Chumba Wumba song, Cup Thumping, which says, you know, I get knocked down, but I get up again. You know, so to me, that resiliency is really important. If someone's looking to be an entrepreneur, you are going to fall, you're going to get knocked down. And if you don't have it in you to have to repeatedly uh, get up and say, I'm going to go at it again, um, you know, you're not in the right business. Rohit, thank you so much for joining us today on this inaugural podcast of Garage to Global. Great speaking with you. Well, thank you. This is uh, Richard Levick for In-House Warrior, the daily podcast of the Corporate Council Business Journal. And this is our new weekly program, Garage to Global. I've been joined by Ian Lipner and Louis LaHoe and our guest, Rohit Bellani. Thanks so much for joining us and we'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to the Corporate Council Business Journal's daily podcast, In-House Warrior, with host Richard Levick. If you've enjoyed listening to our show, please rate and subscribe to the In-House Warrior on your favorite podcast platform.